This is God's word. Jeremiah 21. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pashur, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Then Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging your outside, you outside the walls. And I will bring them together into the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. They shall die of a great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in this city who survived the pestilence, sword, and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. And to the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus says the Lord, Execute justice in the morning, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him whom has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire, and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. You who say, who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in her forest, and it shall devour all that is around her. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah and speak there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. But if you will not obey these words... I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, You are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon. Yet surely I will make you a desert, an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapon, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by the city, and every man will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, 
because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. Weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more to see his native land. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, and who went away from this place. He shall return here no more. But in the place where they have carried him captive, there shall he die, and he shall never see this land again. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is this not to know me, declares the Lord? But you have eyes and a heart only for dishonest gain, for the shedding of innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, His Majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out, and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds and your lovers shall go into captivity. Then you shall be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil. O inhabitant of Lebanon, nested among the cedars, how you will be pitied when pangs come upon you, pain as of a woman in labor. As I live, declares the Lord, Though Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return." Is this man, Kaniah, a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they did not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word today, would you use it now to penetrate our hearts? Would you speak to us through it? Open our eyes and give us understanding that we may see not just, not just a history lesson, Lord, but we may hear your words to us today. Would you change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 21, as I mentioned before going on vacation, is a turning point in the book of Jeremiah. It's a transition into a new section. It's marked here by, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. 
and it served providentially as a good break for us while I was gone. So now we're coming back. And if you noticed, as we read this morning, this is a, a different, there's a shift in time here in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, it may be a little confusing because up to this point, we've been looking far ahead to the coming judgment, and now it seems that the judgment is here. But then as we go through the passage, it looks like we go back in time, and that's, that's what happens. It's good to remember this is a prophecy. This is not a narrative. And although it does narrate some elements of history, it's not chronological in the sense of like you would read uh, Matthew, Mark, or uh, the Gospels, or another narrative in the Old Testament. And so what is happening here is we're at the point that Babylon has come in judgment, according to God's plan, to deal with Judah. And as Babylon is besieging the city or outside the walls, Zedekiah has this idea to come as a last-ditch effort to send to Jeremiah to intervene to the Lord for him. And at this point, I think most of us, if you've been here for much or most of the book of Jeremiah, you see that this is kind of, it strikes you a little bit as naive, uh, if not just altogether ignorant. Because Zedekiah has now been alive through much or all of Jeremiah's ministry. He has heard the message of Jeremiah over and over again. This is not a new idea to him, and yet he comes with this uh, hope, this word that God might remove this judgment from him. And of course, we know this is more than just naive. The message here is against the rebelliousness of the God's people, especially her leaders. The message focuses in on the kings, but it zeroes in in a unique way on injustice. And we've, this is not the only place we've seen this. We've seen this before in Jeremiah. We'll see it again. It's not the only place in Scripture that we see this. But it's, it does focus in in a, in a unique way. It's clearly a theme here. We see this in chapter 21, verses 12 and following. Again in chapter 22, verses 3 and following. And later on in that same chapter, 11, uh, uh, verse 11 and following. It's not the only message against them. He does speak of their waywardness, of their idolatry. But it zeroes in on injustice as a way of tying all of this together. In other words, I think we could make the case that a lack of mercy and indifference toward justice is actually an an indicator that our hearts are hard, possibly an indicator of idolatry. When our hearts become cold, this is then an indicator that our hearts are not close to the Lord. We see this in his message where he speaks to Josiah and says, is this not to know me? That is, to care for the poor and the needy. In other words, as we are close to the Lord in our heart, as we know him and as we love him, we will have his eyes for the needy. But justice and mercy are not simple issues either. We know this in our own lives, in our own time. We know that it's, there are times where when we show mercy, there's great wisdom that's required. How to show mercy? What does it look like? Sometimes people say that they're showing mercy when in fact they're just people pleasers. Maybe you've fallen into that category at times. I remember reading a book on short-term missions that came out 10 or 15 years ago called When Helping Hurts. And it was a confrontational book to the idea of sending short-term mission teams to parts of the world, and it was an in-depth study. And one of the, the issues that it dealt with was the whole idea of a savior complex. I found that very convicting 
I think a lot of people went on these trips thinking they were saving other people or helping other people. And what studies showed was that while many of the trips were good and beneficial, there were many efforts that were uh, not so beneficial. They were actually harmful. And that, that's the title, When Helping Hurts. Sometimes mercy is just a, a front for shameful weakness. We're not willing to take a stand and we call it mercy. Sometimes mercy becomes enabling of another person or group of people, causing them more harm than good. And yet, we are called to show mercy, to love mercy, because we are all debtors to God's mercy toward us in Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, do we want God to be careful or uh, stingy with his mercy toward us, or do we want him to be lavish in his mercy toward us? Do we think that we have earned God's mercy? Or do we recognize that it is all because of his grace towards us in Jesus? Do we understand the connection of how great we have been forgiven by God and the mercy that should be reflected in our lives? I think the answer to those questions, of course, is that we want God to be lavish in his mercy. We have been forgiven much, and so we should be forgiving. But as you can see, it's, it's not just as simple as go show mercy. It requires a bit of wisdom. It requires a lot of wisdom. It requires wrestling with and leaning into the Spirit's guidance on these issues. As we all know, Satan is the father of lies, and he often uses half-truths to deceive. We know this ever since the garden when he said, did God really say? And he's been doing that ever since. We're undoubtedly seeing these deceptions in our own time, in a day when People call things justice that aren't actually justice and thus become injustice and deceptive of others. And so we need wisdom. And by wisdom, I do not simply mean sharper minds or better information. We need the person of wisdom. We need Jesus himself to rule in our hearts and our minds. And as we look to him in faith, we will be merciful as he is merciful We will be wise as he is wise and loving as he is loving. When we take our eyes off of our king, we will seek our own interests above others. We will be cold-hearted toward those in need. And we will rebuff the oppressed as having deserved what they are experiencing. Or we'll swing the pendulum to the other side. We'll become people pleasers. We'll try to accommodate the culture around us. We'll fall prey to the many deceptions with the appearances of mercy. You see, this is not a simple issue. Jesus came in a lowly state to lay down his life for us, to save his people from her sins, but he no less came as king. And he brought with him and inaugurated a kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, and yet it invades this world. And now as members of that kingdom, as stewards of that kingdom, It means that we who have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light are to shine the light of that kingdom, the light of grace and mercy, of truth and justice. And so in order to do that, we must be close to him. We must, as is pointed out in this passage, know the Lord. If you treat justice and mercy as a to-do list, as a task list, as just something that you just have to get better at, I think you'll miss the mark every time. Because our hearts are so tricky. Our motives are always mixed. None of us has pure motives. So even when we go and try and show mercy with the best motives, we get messed up. 
We get to thinking that we're going to make people happy and they'll like us better. Or we get a bit of what I refer to as a savior complex. Or we swing the pendulum in the other way and we pat ourselves on the back for being right and precise. And we end up ignoring the needs of others. We need the Lord. We need to know the Lord and to know his heart for mercy. So may he work through us, his people, to the praise of his glory in this regard. Now look in chapter 21. We see Zedekiah. He sends two of his men to inquire of the Lord. And I've mentioned it seems a bit strange, if not ironic, that Zedekiah would do this because he has heard Jeremiah's message. It's not a new message. Jeremiah has been delivering this message over and over again. And so when we read his statement, perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us, him being Nebuchadnezzar, it seems naive if not ignorant. And I say that because even in the English it comes out as a bit snarky, doesn't it? You know, perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his... No, the Lord's not going to... If you keep doing what he's told you to stop over and over again for the past two, three decades at this point... No, he's not going to stop. But that's the approach that this king has. So we already know a bit about Zedekiah before we even dig in. Jeremiah responds, though, right away to Pashur and Zephaniah that they should tell the king that God has spoken. And not only will Nebuchadnezzar succeed in his siege against Judah, but look in verse 5. God says this to his people. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar, except it's backwards. Because every time we hear this outstretched hand and mighty arm type of language, it's God speaking of how he's delivered his people. This is the only time in the Old Testament where God takes it and flips it around and says instead of having this be the means by which he delivers his people, that this now is going to be the means by which he judges his people. He turns the commonly used promise of deliverance as a form of discipline. He says those who do not die by the sword will die of pestilence, and those who do not die of pestilence will be carried away into exile. There will be no compassion for Nebuchadnezzar to show them. And then he addresses the people through Jeremiah. And this time he gives them a warning. It's not to turn from their sin. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar's outside the city walls. The time for turning is over. Their only hope at this point is to turn themselves in, basically give up, hand themselves over to surrender. And of course, Jeremiah is later going to be charged with treason for delivering this message because that's how the leaders treated this. But the Lord makes it clear in verse 9, He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize for war. In other words, everything else is going to be destroyed. Save yourselves. The only way to do this is to go outside right now and surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. That is the state that they are in. Again, the rulers of Judah are addressed in verse 11, where they're called to execute justice to deliver the oppressed. This is the first of the messages that centers in on this. The people of Judah had been suffering. They'd been suffering since Josiah had died because they had not had a righteous king since then. Zedekiah is the last of the four kings after Josiah. He's the last king of Judah. And they have been suffering under unrighteous leadership ever since. 
We've seen this already, but, but, so these are repeated themes that we're, that we're accustomed to. But look in verse 13. They say things like, who shall come against us? Or who shall enter our habitations? This false sense of security that, hey, we're God's chosen people. No one can touch us. He won't let any harm come to us. And they failed to realize and admit their own sin, their own breaking of the covenant. That in doing so, God had told them when he established the covenant that if you do not obey, if you break this covenant, I will discipline you. And so now he says to them quite plainly in verse 14, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds. In other words, what's coming to you in this discipline is just. It is exactly what I told you I would do if you did not obey. And then in chapter 22, we come to this Message to all four kings, and it's, it's in kind of a unique order. It starts with Zedekiah, and then it goes back to right after Josiah and moves through the three, uh, the three sons or two sons and grandson of Josiah. So Josiah's sons and grandson became kings after them, and then Zedekiah was their uncle. So it was all in the family. Uh, but the youngest, who was told, you will not have a son on the throne, was indeed that promise was fulfilled. It wasn't his son, but was Zedekiah. So first, when we go back, we see Jehoahaz. And it becomes confusing here, because as they're introduced in the beginning of Jeremiah, we see their given names, and then later we see their their their, their throne names, or in some cases, the names that the outside ruler gave them when he placed them. It was, a, it was kind of a form of subjection. When, when uh, Necho, the, the Egyptian pharaoh, or Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, would put someone on the throne, they would often change their name to show uh, the power that they had over them. So it kind of goes backwards, starts with Jehoahaz, who's also known as Shalom here. Uh, and Shalom was one of those kings that only lasted for three months. He was removed by the Egyptian pharaoh. He was carried off into exile. He was, he's told in this passage, you're going to die there. You're not going to come back to the homeland. That's exactly what ha- happened. And then Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, comes to power. He was also called Eliakim. He ruled the longest. Uh, next to Zedekiah, they both ruled 11 years. Necho had put him on the throne, again, as a force of a show of power. But then in that 11-year period, the world powers began to shift. We've talked about this some. Assyria was in power at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. And then there was a shift to Babylon rising to power. And that's what happened during these 11 years. The Egyptian army was trying to side themselves with the Assyrians. They, they chose that, that, uh, that ally rather than Babylon. And it was the wrong choice because Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were those who rose to power. Third was Jehoiakim. He's called Kaniah here. He's the one who also ruled only, only three months. He came to power when he was 18 years old. You remember he and his mother Nashter. Jeremiah's dealt with them before. Uh, they, um, they kind of worked together. The queen mother uh, had quite a bit of power in the influence of her young son. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and removes them after three short months, carries them off to Babylon. They would never return. And then Zedekiah comes to the throne. By the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, he places him there. He also rules 11 years. And he remained there until Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 B.C. at the time of the exile. So Zedekiah is addressed first in verses 1 to 9. And he's called out for his many injustices. Jeremiah speaks to him and says, in essence, if you would do what is right, then you would flourish. He says, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people, in verse 4. 
In other words, if he would just act according to the way God had instructed him, he would flourish. But if not, verse 5, this house shall become a desolation. The Lord then describes his people and their land using the metaphors of Gilead and Lebanon. Gilead was the northern pasture land. Lebanon was the mountainous region that brought the melting snow and the clear waters. And so these were metaphors or images that would bring up pictures of lushness and flourishing and so forth. And God's saying, I've given you this promised land. This is the picture of what I've given you. But it's all going to get turned into a desert in judgment if you will not obey. And it's going to be so stark that when the nations, the unbelieving nations, the Gentile nations, when they pass by, they will wonder, what has the Lord done? Look in verse 8. Why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And the Lord provides the answer in verse 9. Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. And the evidence is not just their rebellious uh, actions, their hardness of heart, but go back to verse 3. It's that they've overlooked the oppressed, that they've shown violence to the resident alien or the refugee, the fatherless, the widow. They've shed innocent blood in this place. It is because of these sins. This is the, what is stacked against them. After Zedekiah, Jeremiah goes back to the very beginning after Josiah to Shalom. He was given the name Jehoahaz. He came to the throne after Josiah was killed. The, the people were mourning Josiah's death. He died in battle. And so Jehoahaz, or Shalom, comes and, and to the throne, and he lasts only three months. But during this time, he does all kinds of evil. It says in verses 11 and 12, He shall return here no more, but in the place where they've carried him, that is Egypt, uh, there shall he die. He shall never see this land again. His reign is described as one who built his house in unrighteousness. And what happened was he uh, he didn't have the spoils of war. He didn't. His his dad had been had been killed in battle, been defeated. They did not have a treasury uh, that was stacked. And so, what did he decide to do? Well, he thought that in order to be king, he needed to have a great palace. And so, he used the backs of his own people. He had them work and build without pay. He didn't pay them a fair wage. He didn't pay them a wage at all to build this ornate palace with spacious rooms, had the most expensive woods. It was painted with this vermilion, this, this, this expensive paint. And so God asks him in verse 15, do you think you are king because you compete in cedar? That's the image that is portrayed, that his, his, he's showing off through his uh, uh, lavish living. You know, he's got all the brands. He's, he's, he's flaunting all the status through the building, and he's done all of this on the backs of the people. He thought this is what brought him prominence, but the Lord tells him, look at your father. Did not your father eat and drink? In other words, did he not enjoy life and yet do justice and righteousness? This, and it was well with him. And then he adds, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy, verse 16. Then it was well. Is this not to know me? The Lord turns all this around saying, the, the, the fruit of knowing me is that you would care for the poor and the needy. That's the evidence that you truly know me. Yet Shalom only had eyes and a heart for dishonest gain, verse 17. The shedding of innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. In his short reign, he accomplished so much evil. And so the message Jeremiah gives to him and thus to the people in exile after the fall and to us today is this, know the Lord. Know the Lord. We so, 
it's in, it's almost like in our software that we want to turn God's instruction into an owner's manual or a rule book. And yet the message that he gives us over and over in this is know me. Know me and then the fruit will come. When you turn this into a heavy, burdensome rule, a, a list of laws and things that you have to perform, in other words, that you're kind of earning or striving for or trying to do, you'll fail every time. Know me. Know me. Joachim, verse 18, the next brother king to be addressed. The Lord states that when he dies, no one will mourn his death. He ruled for 11 years. If there was a king in this list that should have been mourned, it should have been him. But it says that his body will be cast out, will be treated no better than the corpse of a donkey. And we can fast forward to chapter 36 of Jeremiah and see, indeed, that is exactly what happened. The Lord says concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. This wasn't hyperbolic. This is literally what happened. And in verse 21, we read that the Lord addressed him in his prosperity, but he would not listen. At a time when he should have listened. He didn't hear. And so the people of Judah would suffer. They would suffer under this king. They would suffer in the judgment that would come as Babylon would come as a wind. The wind that shall shepherd all of your shepherds and your lovers shall go into captivity. Then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all of your evil. And then last, Kaniah. He is uh, Jehoiachin, also known as him. He only ruled for three months. He was the one who came uh, to the throne at, the, at 18 years of age. The Lord's words to him are harsh. He says if he were a signet ring, he would tear him off or rip him off. You understand the signet ring was the, the means of signature, right? It was the, the means by which the king said, this piece of correspondence or this item is from my hand. And so his signet ring was precious to him. He would keep it close. If he wasn't wearing it on his finger, he would wear it on a cord around his neck because this is what identified all that he did with who he was. So the picture here is that the king of God's people was to be in relationship with the Lord in this way, was to be close to the Lord, worn on the finger, worn around a cord of the neck. But God says, this doesn't exist with Kaniah. And so I'm going to rip him off. I'm going to throw him away. And that's what he does. He and his mother carried off into exile and never to return to the city. He's also promised not to have a son who sits on the throne. Called a despised and broken pot in verse 28. This is where his royal line would end. It would be his uncle, not his son, who would come to the throne after him. And Zedekiah would be the final king of Judah. And so in this judgment, it seems like it's all over, right? The promise that the seed would, would, would keep going until the Messiah would come, it seems like it's all ending here. There's no future hope for the people of God. The monarchy has ended But with the Lord, we know he always keeps his promises and he always makes a way. And we're going to see that later on in the next passage. But what do we do with this? What about this passage? We know Judah had bad kings. Okay, so what? Right? They did all kinds of evil. They're called out specifically here for injustice. How do we understand God's justice? We've talked about the fact that it's complicated I can't answer all the questions about justice in one sermon. Let me just zero in on one particular aspect of justice. We have to start with God. If we're going to understand biblical justice, we have to start with Him. And He always gets it right. God's ways are perfectly just, and He always gets it right. We, on the other hand, do not. So be careful 
when you hear voices in the culture and in the Christian culture say, I have it all figured out, come do it my way. (laughs) Uh, Because there are those voices out there. Be careful of that. We don't always get it right. We are sinners. Our ways are not perfect and just. Even when we have the best motives, our motives are still mixed. Think of the verse in Ephesians, uh, speaking the truth in love, right? We often talk about we need to speak the truth in love. And yet we know people, maybe those people are us, who kind of lean in toward the truth side of things. They're bent toward the truth side. They want to get things right. They want to be precise. And in doing so, may bulldoze others and demean them and fail to treat them with care. This is wrong. Some people we may know, or again, maybe it's us, are bent toward the love side. Wanting to care for others, we hesitate to stand firm, maybe even out of, out of a fear of not being liked. We tolerate lies. This too is wrong. For us as sinners, there is a tension between truth and love, but this is not so with God. Because He is just and true, He always gets it right. And herein is our hope. While earthly kings and rulers, even the best of them, often fail, they don't always get it right. Even while we too, with the best of intentions, often fail, we don't always get it right. We have a king who rules in truth, in justice, in love, and in mercy, and is, in, and is perfect in all his ways. And he has made a way for all of our wrongs to be made right by coming to lay down his life and to die for our sins in our place. He then gives us his righteousness that we may stand before him. So yes, while we're in this life, we still struggle with sin. None of us are perfect yet, so we're still going to fight this fight. This means that we have to go to him to find in him perfect wisdom. We don't have it all figured out. That's okay. He does. We go to Him. And at the same time, when we fail to care for the needy, when we fail to free the oppressed, when we fail to help the widow and the fatherless, we go to Him for forgiveness because He has made it right. In the gospel is our only hope to both receive the justice and mercy that we so desperately need and to live in a way that shows justice and mercy towards others. The commands of Scripture... To show justice and mercy are not burdensome tasks that we're to shoulder. Rather, they are to flow from the truth of knowing the gospel and all that the gospel is for us in our lives, what Christ has accomplished in our place, that we have been shown great mercy in the forgiveness of our sins, so we should forgive and show mercy toward others. Jeremiah spoke rightly as God's prophet against the many wrongdoings of the kings of Judah. And so as we'll see... In the next chapter, and we're going to peek ahead just so we can have hope as we leave here today. In the next chapter, this is what Jeremiah points to. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So even though it looks like the monarchy's cut off, God's still going to do it. He is going to raise up that righteous branch. And I know genealogies aren't exciting to hear, especially at the end of a sermon. But let me just read a teeny bit of Matthew's genealogy in his gospel. 
In Matthew chapter 1, you may have read, read over this a hundred times and not realized the significance of it. See it today. He lists the people, and, he, and I'm going to start right in the middle with Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This is what is about to happen. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim of Azor, Azor of Zadok, Zadok of Achim, Achim of Elihud, Elihud of Eliezer, Eliezer of Mathan, Mathan of Jacob, Jacob of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. God made a way. And we have in our Savior and our King our only hope. The same hope of Judah way back then, way back then is our only hope today. Yes, we should pursue justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor those who have been robbed. Yes, we should do no wrong or violence to the refugee, to the fatherless and the widow, nor should we shed innocent blood. But this is only done as we look in faith to our perfect King. We must rely on him moment by moment, both for the wisdom to know how to apply the truth in love, to show both justice and mercy, and to receive the forgiveness when we fail. Thankfully, we have a Savior. He alone is our hope in the sinful world in which we live and the sinful estate in which we struggle. So do justly and love mercy, but only as you walk humbly with your God who is your Savior. Let's pray.